doesn't love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Catchy tunes, a brilliant Gene Wilder, spoiled kids who get their comeuppance, and with a film set you just want to eat, it was literally a work of pure imagination. Unbelievably, it wasn't a hit when it was originally released in 1971, and it was only when it came out on VHS, remember those, in the early 80s that it took off and people realised what an awesome film it is and became the much-loved classic it is today. I'm Genevieve and I'm very excited and honoured to have the person who inherited the Chocolate Factory join me to talk about his life after that thing he did. So please welcome Charlie Bucket himself, Peter Ostrom. Hello Pete, lovely to see you. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. I saw that this past weekend you were at a chocolate expo in Wilmington, Massachusetts, along with some of the other Wonka cast for a bit of a reunion. What a great place to get together. Whose genius idea was that? Marvin Baum, who actually coordinates chocolate conventions. That was kind of his brainstorm. And several years ago, he had met Paris Themen, who played my TV, and asked Paris to be at one of his chocolate expos. And that worked out quite nicely. And then Marvin thought, well, let me see if I can get other cast members from Wonka to be there also. So this past weekend, Rusty Goff, Oompa Loompa, was there. And Julie Don Cole, Baruka Salt, and myself, as well as Paris. Chocolate convention. I mean, I did not know these existed, but... Nor did I. I feel like I need to go to one. <laughs> I was hoping to uh, be able to sample some of the different vendors. Did you not? <laughs> the response was overwhelming for people that wanted to meet us. Oh, so you had no time. It was nonstop. Eight hours, Saturday and Sunday, of meeting and greeting, talking, taking pictures and signing autographs for people. So I never got a chance to leave the her little corner of the uh, convention. But no. um, several vendors did come over and give me some of their uh, their trade. And rightly so, should they have. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> if I was there, I'd be like, bring me chocolate now, god damn it. <laughs> what I did taste was excellent. So Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Sure. I'm very excited because I love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Listeners can't see it, but I have my DVD here that I was given as a birthday present 25 years ago. I still have it, even though I don't have a DVD player anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Ohio and became involved in children's theatre at the Cleveland Playhouse, Correct. where you spent a couple of years doing things on stage, but you'd never been on screen before, let alone a film, had you? That is correct. So I started working at the Playhouse, taking classes, Saturday morning theatre classes, when I was in fourth grade. So I was probably nine years old, 10 years old, and worked at the Playhouse for roughly three years before Wonka was cast. But you are correct, I had absolutely no film, TV experience whatsoever, just theatre. And so you auditioned for talent agents who were searching for someone to play Charlie Bucket. Correct. And I find it really interesting that not only did you audition in your own home, 
where they came to you. But you also auditioned by reading parts of Roald Dahl's book because there wasn't a script at that point, which is quite unusual. But also, you couldn't have had any idea of what the film was actually going to be like. I mean, obviously, it's going to pretty much follow the the storyline of the book, but you wouldn't know how much it would deviate from the book or, or even what to expect. Correct. We read from the book. Again, this was a very... Uh... When you think of casting calls, cattle calls, where there's hundreds of Charlies appearing vying to be in the film, that was not the scenario for me. The uh, casting agent came from New York to Cleveland, where I lived. It was a one-on-one. She had lunch at our home. <laughs> it was very low stress, low key. She had a Polaroid camera, took several pictures. I read from the book into the tape recorder. I sang a song. <laughs> My Country Tis of Thee or America the Beautiful or something like that. She probably cringed because I can't sing very well and said, thank you very much. She was very polite. You know, don't call us, we'll call you. And they called back. (laughs) (laughs) So then after you did get the part a couple of months later, you were only given 10 days to prepare before you were flown off to Germany to start filming for five months. Although to be fair, I noticed you don't actually have too much dialogue in the film, but they did want you to lose weight. Correct. Charlie is, you know, very poor, not eating well. And I was never heavy as a kid to begin with, but they wanted me to look even more drawn. (laughs) I don't know how I did lose weight, but, or maybe not at all, but they were happy with the way that I appeared. Get a 12 year old to crash diet for 10 days. (laughs) It's probably a little on the unethical side, but yeah. Probably so. (laughs) OSHA was not, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with OSHA, but (laughs) they would uh, not have been happy with all the things that took place on our set. Maybe that's why they made it in Germany too, OSHA. What's OSHA? Is that like a a child union or something? (laughs) Well, it's a work, (laughs) so all worker safety, think worker safety. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's, uh, Let's talk a little bit about some of the iconic scenes from the film that everyone loves and your memories of making them. First, I have to say, you rival Tom Cruise with the amount of running you do in this film. You you run so much. (laughs) Absolutely. And post-Wonka, I continued to run. (laughs) I think I did uh, seven or maybe eight marathons. So it it was in my blood. (laughs) And I read, did you finish first in a, which marathon was it? Lake Placid Marathon? Oh, yeah. That was a half marathon. That was one of my better races. But that's how they that, that's how they broke me into filming. We did all the outside running scenes first. Again, very low key, no dialogue, just run, throw the papers, which actually was my very first job. Paid job was paper delivery. Oh. For the Cleveland plane dealer. Had to have the papers out delivered in our neighborhood by 6.30 every day. Were you as accurate with your tosses as Charlie is, though, in the film? Because he, uh, <laughs> he was um, very accurate. I, I think I was. I think I was. Ah, <laughs> your musical number, I Got a Golden Ticket, uh, which Charlie sings with Grandpa Joe, played, of course, by the brilliant Jack Albertson. Correct. Originally, you weren't supposed to sing it, were you? Or rather, your voice wasn't well, supposed to be used. When, when I auditioned, they said, don't worry. We realize that you're not the world's greatest singer. We'll probably just dub and use somebody else's voice. But in the end, they ended up using my voice. But my part in that song was quite lengthy originally, but by the time they got done with editing, it was actually quite small, which was fine. 
But I think that's kind of part of, you know, they didn't want the idea. I mean, at that same point in time, Oliver is out, people with wonderful voices, knowing maybe it didn't quite make sense that Charlie would have had this wonderful voice. He didn't have vocal lessons, and I certainly didn't. So maybe that's the sound or the love that they were at. They wanted the sound of a poor boy. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't know. But I'm quite proud of that song. <laughs> More proud of Jack. <laughs> helping me through. <laughs> what were your memories of working with Jack? Oh, he was wonderful. Both he and Gene Wilder were uh, absolute professionals, easygoing, no drama, very professional. Come to the set, do your work, no screwing around. They had great work ethic, but they really helped me too. This is how we do things. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience working with both of them. I know that Mel Stewart, who directed the film and had the idea to adapt the book after his daughter read it and asked him to make it, mm -hmm. was keen to keep your reactions genuine in the film. So certain things were kept from you to capture those moments of surprise, Correct. like Willy Wonka's first introduction and when you enter the chocolate room for the first time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, after repeated takes, it's not so novel anymore, but those first impressions must have been amazing. They were. They were. And probably the chocolate room seen that for the first time was wonderful again like you say you know multiple takes the novelty wears off pretty quick but gene's you know his explosive outbursts during the tunnel scene and then when charlie gives back the gobstopper at the end gene knew what he was going to do but we didn't know what he was going to do so our reaction to gene's reading of his lines were completely genuine controversially I kind of feel like Charlie shouldn't have inherited the chocolate factory. <laughs> now here I'm starting to hear that more and more. <laughs> but he, he realized, he confessed to his sins, okay? <laughs> and felt some remorse and honed up to his mistakes where the other kids did not. But he so. didn't really own up to it. I mean, he did give in to temptation. He did steal fizzy lifting drinks. He he did give back the Everlasting Gobstopper, which is perhaps the most impractical shape of candy ever. Correct. But the other kids may have also given it back. We don't know after they were squeezed or unshrunk or, or whatever. We'll never know. We'll never but know, but probably <laughs> not. But I did have somebody. So this past weekend, somebody gave me a replica of the Everlasting Gobstopper. Ooh. Beautiful replica. And I'm going through security at the airport. And my bag, of course, gets pulled to be checked. And the TSA officer pulls out the everlasting gobstopper. And he knew exactly what it was. <laughs> he goes, that's an everlasting gobstopper. And then he says, that does not look like something some kid should put in their mouth, ever. <laughs> and I said, I agree. I didn't explain who I was or what I was doing with an everlasting gobstopper in my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Practically, how was the fizzy lifting drink scene filmed? I'm going to guess uncomfortable harnesses. Uncomfortable, absolutely. Leather girdles, so to speak, under our pants with metal turrets, pivots with piano wires. So a uh, little swivel on our right, swivel on our left hip. So you could actually do somersaults harder for Jack Albertson mm. than for me. It was uncomfortable. And we were actually quite high when we did that. And that where the bubble 
bones were coming out of that flower type object was actually metal and were quite high and hoping that the uh, piano wires don't break or we would have been impaled kind of like in Braveheart. So it was a little scary. OSHA would not definitely. I was going to say, I, OSHA, OSHA went on duty that day. That <laughs> I was disappointed to learn it's not actually you and Jack burping in the film though. <laughs> That's true. That is the only Charlie that is not really me. So somebody in California makes a lot of money off of burping. Somebody did ask me, though, the person that did that, did he do Jack, too, and Charlie? I don't know the answer to that. Good question. But it was not me. Maybe it was Jack. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to Gene Wilder, you mentioned a second ago, so brilliant is Willy Wonka. And I wanted to talk a bit about his relationship with the young cast. Mm-hmm. I know they always say don't work with children or animals. Correct. Uh, but I love that there was a behind the scenes clip I saw of him saying he was happy working with you all. But he said, and I quote, four are lovely and the other one I'm shooting in the head tomorrow. Correct. <laughs> and I'll stress the other one wasn't you because you had a great relationship with him. That's true. I did. <laughs> was it you shared a chocolate bar with him every day at lunchtime we did and and a getty image just appeared like two months ago at lunch a still photograph that i had never seen before i'll have to share it with you and whatever i said made gene laugh it's a wonderful photo (laughs) and because we always broke for lunch at the commissary at Bavaria film studio where we were everybody would drink beer at lunch that's what they did i didn't and, <laughs> but you didn't as a 12 year old no well Oktoberfest i did but not working not working and so gene and i are probably having tea it looks like but there is a beer stein right in front of us like that it's not us <laughs> we weren't drinking speaking of working with children i heard that mel wasn't the most tolerant working with the younger cast and could be quite tough. Yeah, but he wasn't tolerant of anybody, <laughs> adult <laughs> or children. So, But he knew what he was doing. We didn't appreciate what he was doing at that point in time because it was, for whatever reason, you know, 53 years later, here we are, we're still talking about people who are still interested in talking to me about Wonka, but Mel captured lightning in a bottle and it worked. And I have more of an appreciation for his talent than I did when we were filming. Mel liked to raise his voice and not being polite. Mm. I didn't grow up with that. I never heard yelling um, between my parents. And so this was kind of a new experience for me. It took a little while between filming the movie and its release. What was your reaction when you saw it for the first time? Because although you were on set making it, you're now seeing Harper Goff's art direction and all its glory on the big screen. Correct. And seeing the daylights, I never went. I think I did once or twice to see what had been shot the previous day. And I decided that that probably wasn't a good idea to see myself and how we were doing. So I never, I stopped doing that. And so when the film was actually released almost a year after my involvement, it was amazing to see, you know, five months of work, well, longer than that, but, you know, condensed into an hour and 35 minutes. And and all the different vignettes that we were not privy to of the people, you know, trying to find the golden ticket. So just seeing the film for the very first time was amazing. And the scene that 
completely blew me away was Julie's song when she goes down the tube. I want it now. I was impressed by her voice because I couldn't sing. <laughs> but it was just, it was wonderful. And I was there when we filmed that. But again, to see everything together was was wonderful. I saw Julie say that she was only paid £600 to star in the film, £60 a week for 10 weeks' work. Um, and that was it. No residuals or royalties on tickets or video sales. Yeah, that's Was correct. that around the same amount of payment for you? So you were in a bit longer, but... She got £60. £60 a week, yeah. Yeah, maybe I got £61 per week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why we all had to do something else in our careers. But, but that was a long time ago. We had no idea. But if you ask me, I'm 66 years old now. And looking back, would you do this again? And we're not going to pay you anything. We're not going to pay you 61 pounds per week. We're going to pay you nothing. But the memories that you will create, the legacy of this movie, we'd all do it again for free. Bonuses, they did pay us a little something. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's been an amazing experience. And, you know, talking to people this weekend, it's very dear to people. People light up when they meet us, and they really light up when they realize that I became a veterinarian, because that kind of touches their heart, too. Spoiler alert. We'll talk about that. Spoiler alert. So I ended up with the best of both worlds. And if you could only be in one film, this was the film to be in. I saw on the internet, I don't know if the internet is true, so maybe you could confirm or deny, that you still get a check for eight or nine dollars every three months. That's true. Last week, I think... In royalties. Yeah, well, inflation, I think I got a check for $15 last week. (laughs) So (laughs) things are improving. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be able to go to McDonald's. Uh, Not that I eat at McDonald's anymore, but... (laughs) when I did but now I can't even afford McDonald's <laughs> so with what I get oh well at least it's still coming in correct exactly I'm not complaining <laughs> I do find it amazing though that for a film that was originally funded by Quaker Oats as a marketing tool to sell its new candy bars has gone on to become one of the most beloved movies of the past 40 years, and I say 40 years instead of 50, because when it was first released in 1971, it wasn't a commercial success. Um, And it was only after its video release in the 80s that it really took off and became popular. That must have been a surprise for you a decade later. Absolutely. But yeah, when it came out, this was kind of passed over. Although Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, movie critics in the US, they loved it. They loved it. So just having their review, the other people didn't know what they were talking (laughs) about. (laughs) okay it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what i like to call the latted zone otherwise known as life after that thing i did Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time here welcome you have five whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed and please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latted zone after filming Willy Wonka you were offered a three-film deal, but decided to turn it down and actually didn't act again after. And we'll talk a bit more about the career path you did pursue about in a moment. 
although we did have the slight spoiler before. Um, But why was that? And how much do you think the fact that the film wasn't that popular on its initial release affected your decision? I mean, if there had been some momentum behind the film, might you have carried on with it? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so, because when I was offered that, when that was on the table under discussion, the film hadn't even been released yet. Right. And a couple things. One, I like being in control. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little OCD. Okay. (laughs) Um, We had no idea what those next three films were going to be. And Wolper didn't know what they were going to be. And I didn't like the idea of agreeing to be in something that I didn't know what it was going to be. I had no control whatsoever. And so that made me feel uncomfortable, so to speak. And again, probably the best way to summarize this, I liked being in the film. I liked theater. I liked acting. But the movie business, the hype, the the drama Mm -hmm. (laughs) associated with that was something that I was not very fond of. And I heard that the same comment was made about Gene. Gene loved acting, loved making films, but did not like the idea of, of the business of movies and that whole aspect. And there was an opportunity possibly to be on Broadway in Equus, audition for the young boy in Equus when I was in high school. Came close to getting the role, but did not. Peter Firth actually got the role. So maybe if I had gotten that role, I would have gone in a different direction, but didn't work out. <laughs> but it's great that you had the confidence in your conviction at that age that acting wasn't for you. And also your parents supported that decision, especially your dad, as he wanted to be an actor, didn't he? But he uh, became absolutely. a lawyer. So he could have vicariously lived through you and pushed you more into it. Correct. But they respected my opinion and understood you know, where I was coming from. And so dad, after he retired, and did more theater work. And so I got to live <laughs> my theater dreams through him when he mm. retired. Well, let's be fair, as you, as you mentioned, you know, if you had to only be in one film in your life, what a film to be in. <laughs> Although I imagine it's probably weird that something you did for five months of your life when you were 12 is something you now have to talk about for the <laughs> rest of your life. Correct. But, but you're on VH1's list of greatest child actors. The film has been included in the US National Film Registry for preservation, for being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. What a legacy. Yeah, so that's wonderful. And, and had I not gone on to pursue another career and, and that was it, maybe I would be you know, disappointed, but my life went in a completely different direction. And so that I look back at Wonka and that's one tiny piece of who Peter Ostrom is. It's a great piece, but it's a very small piece. So let's talk about what you did instead. You pursued a very different career path. Uh, You started getting involved with horses, worked at stables, and even worked as a groomer for the Japanese equestrian team at the 1976 Montreal Olympics. That must have been amazing. And it inspired you to become a vet, working with large animals, mainly cows, and traveling to farms in upstate New York, where your veterinary practice was. Correct. And I say was because you've recently just retired. Congratulations. Um, Why did you go down the route of dairy practitioner and not small animals like cats and dogs, which is probably more typical? Uh, Well, first of all, so after the film I did, we, our family acquired a horse and to pay that monthly board, 
I worked at the stable shoveling poop. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And learning, <laughs> you know, all about the care of horses, which I found fascinating. Met the veterinarian and thought that this person had the most wonderful job in the world. And then with that same point in time, was introduced to James Harriet books mm-hmm. and just realized I could see myself doing that as a profession. So pursued that mainly in the equine world. And as I was trying to round out my resume prior to veterinary school, needed to work with cattle too, mainly with beef cattle first, but then dairy cattle and just kind of really liked that more so than the equine world, the agricultural aspect of dairy farming and enjoyed the people that were doing that. And so really followed that area primarily. Still do horse work, but it's not the high-end work. Certainly not Olympic caliber horses. I must admit, I was ignorant to the sort of work you do with cows as a vet. I had imagined the stereotype of a vet with their arm up, a cow's bum (laughs) type thing, uh, helping with births, hoof problems, some vaccinations, treating general sickness. Lots of that. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, But then I looked into it a bit and I had no idea there's more science-y side of fertility testing and embryo transfer. And while most vets typically treat animals who are already sick, your job is more preventing them from getting ill in the first place. Absolutely. So I've retired from our veterinary practice after 38 years, actually still not completely retired, uh, retained two of my favorite clients. But we started a dairy consulting business 12 years ago. So I'm still a partner in that. And we do consulting worldwide in the United States, Mexico, Canada, Russia, China, Argentina. I'll just explain for listeners because it'll be difficult for me to edit out that that noise that you can hear that sounds like a spoon in a cup. <laughs> Is actually Pete's dog under the table. That's my dog. <laughs> Wearing a cowbell. No, yeah. <laughs> she just raised her head and her bell went up. <laughs> she got lost once. And so I put a cowbell on her. She's a big dog. <laughs> just so people know what that is. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. How has it been for you seeing the challenges the industry has faced in recent years, I'm thinking, sure. you know, as you're a consultant, specifically about things like growing impact on the environment, climate change activists, animal welfare groups, and people just wanting to know where their food comes from. Do those issues create conflicting feelings for you? And how do you tackle them? The key point of that is education and educating consumers as to where their food comes from. Because, you know, most consumers, well, 100 years ago, Everybody had a cow in their backyard. And now, what, 1% of the population has any real handle? Um, They are not in food production when many years ago everybody was. So we've really been removed from that. Part of our role is to educate our clients as to the practices, the modern practices that take place. And that's not to say, you know, that agriculture... We need to do a better job of educating, but we also need to, the whole concept of environmental stewardship, that was never talked about 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, it is now, and we have to up our game to make sure that we're doing our part to keep food healthy, to keep the animals healthy, to keep them happy, okay? Um, They deserve, even though we're using them for dairy cattle, 
for milk, but in the end for meat, that the life we give them is high quality and they are not mistreated. So our work really deals with education for the consumers, but also education for all of our farm employees to make sure that we are doing the absolute best that we can. Um, I'm an advocate, yes, for my clients, but I'm the advocate for the animals on our farm to make sure everything is done properly. So for a long time, all through school and then college and then starting at the veterinary practice, you were reluctant to talk about Willy Wonka and pretty much denied you were even in the film. <laughs> for a period of time. <laughs> Did you really not even tell your wife you were in it until she met your mum? Uh, I, I did tell her, but not right away. Because I just, it eventually comes out and then I don't like people to be totally surprised. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, there's really no need to talk about it. In my small town, people, well, just this morning I had to drop a, package off at the post office and the young lady who I've seen many times she goes you don't like to talk about the film very much do you and I said well not really but she goes can I ask you a question <laughs> and so we talked and she goes well thank you for sharing that <laughs> so yeah I don't talk about it a whole lot but probably what changed was having children and talking to schools and I still go to our local grade school every year talk to the second Readers. And you realize that uh, it means something to them. Their faces light up. So I had a friend, you know, many years ago, probably 20 years ago, when excitement around Wonka continued to build year after year. And I was probably a little pouty. And he goes, just, hey, you just embrace what you did. It means a lot to many people. So just accept it and don't be such a jerk <laughs> about it. So that uh, <laughs> I kind of took that to heart. So that's why I'm doing this interview right now. <laughs> I feel very honoured that you're speaking to me. I know you don't do very many of these. But um, despite turning your back on an acting career, you're still a big advocate of the arts. Oh, absolutely. And I love something I saw you say about how there's now a big push for STEM learning mm -hmm. in schools, science, technology, engineering, and maths. But you think it should be STEAM. Correct. And not STEM to include the arts too. Absolutely. There's so many kids that don't gravitate towards STEM that need their outlet needs to be the arts. But also, do we want just the people that are in the sciences, technology, math, they need to be well-rounded, you know? People need to know about the arts because that's what makes everything else. It's like the icing on the cake. So we can't not include the arts, but a lot of things is um, school budgets get cut and everything. They like to cut the arts, theater, music out. And that's a, that's a huge mistake in my opinion. As you mentioned, you retired a few months ago. Uh, and as you said, you're now 66, which I spotted is two years older than Jack Albertson was when he played Grandpa Joe in Willy Wonka. <laughs> Although I must say, you do look a lot younger than him now than he did in the film. <laughs> well, I shaved my moustache off. Yeah, you had a very impressive looking moustache <laughs> that you no longer have. Do you feel naked without it? Well, uh, the first couple of days I did. My nephews were very impressed by that moustache. <laughs> And my son. And my son. Uh, all this is me to say, how do you plan on spending your retirement? 
Well, <laughs> if you talk to my wife, she would say you are not retired whatsoever. So the consulting business takes up quite a bit of time. I am there every day. That's where I'm at right now. And then also I uh, just completed my EMT training oh. for our Lewis County Search and Rescue. So I volunteer one night per week with them. So just pass my exams, my practical and my state exams. So just finished that off uh, two weeks ago. Congratulations. Exciting. But again, I like to volunteer in my small community, and that's one way that I can give back. But you are very outdoorsy anyway. Um, you, know, you mentioned you did running marathons. And was it a 90-mile kayak race you did last year? Yeah. How did that go? Uh, very good. So we were in, that's the, I think, the 10th time. That I've done that race. Wow. And uh, so I transitioned from marathon running to marathon canoe racing. So <laughs> I like outdoor sports, uh, like endurance sports. But I'm most proud of I'll be doing a 70-mile race at Clinton Regatta this spring with my 80-year-old partner. Wow. She puts me to shame. <laughs> <laughs> And I hear congratulations are in order too, because you have a new addition to the family. Our first grandchild, born just three months ago, Charlotte Mabel. And her nickname, according to my daughter, is Charlie May. So, oh, <laughs> so that was nice. It's come full circle. It, it has. <laughs> <laughs> She's wonderful. I've seen her once and will be seeing her in a couple of weeks. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations to my daughter and son-in-law. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a grandparent myself, so I don't know, but I, I hear that the first grandchild is the one that you spoil rotten <laughs> and all the ones that come after that are, yeah, not as good. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I'll tell you. <laughs> and I have to ask, as Wonka came out in cinemas recently, I know there wasn't too much love amongst your Wonka cast for the Tim Burton adaptation in 2005, especially with Gene Wilder, who was quite vocal about his displeasure. Um, although, to be fair, your version is the best version. <laughs> have you seen Wonka yet? I have. I have. Young kids love it. It's different than our film. I love Timothy Charlemagne, one of my favourite actors now. So people will like it, but those films, they're great because it always brings the conversation back to our version. Mm. Kids will see Wonka and their parents will say, well, that was nice, but you need to see the original. So it continues to, it's all good. Did you enjoy it though? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Are you allowed to? Is it like heresy if you say you enjoy no, it? it? Because you've got heresy. to be loyal to your own film. Right, it wasn't, it wasn't heresy. <laughs> It was just. I suppose different. it's easier for a prequel because, as it's a different story, you can't make that direct comparison with your film, which people love so much. So correct, but I do think you know, of, uh, people are comparing the three different Wonkas now, and again, from what I've read, and I agree with them, you know, Gene Wilder comes out on top. Yeah. So I will add, prior to the chocolate convention, I was in New York at Lincoln Center at a screening of the new documentary, Remembering Gene Wilder. Oh, yes, yeah. Which is wonderful. So Gene Wilder died of Alzheimer's, and uh, it focuses at the end of the documentary on that, but really gives a nice history of Gene's career. 
So that will be out in general circulation this March at smaller theaters, but also on Netflix too. And it's, he has such a fascinating story as well in his life and how he, at a time when his wife was incredibly sick, he was writing some incredibly funny films. Correct. And how he was able to make other people laugh at a time when he was experiencing himself such great pain. Yes. It's just amazing. Yes. So, you know, look for that, you know, coming out this March. People will, will enjoy it. You were over here in England a couple of years ago for a comic con in Manchester. Might you be coming back over soon so fans can see you again? Yeah, hopefully. At some point. <laughs> invite me back, I'll come back. <laughs> I'll speak to someone who knows about these things who can invite you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, last question. Um, and don't feel that just because I'm British, you have to side with me, but who has the better chocolate, the US or the UK? Well, this chocolate convention that I <laughs> went to, the vendor actually closest to us was from New Hampshire. Okay. They knew who I was, so I, I got free chocolate. <laughs> but they had some wonderful chocolate. Uh, from Guatemala. Oh. So I think maybe not the Americans, <laughs> not the Brits, but I think Central America right now is at the top of the list. <laughs> That's where all the beans come from, though, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> oh, Pete, thanks so much for talking with me today. As I say, I really appreciate you don't do too many interviews. So it's been a real joy and treat speaking with you. Um, enjoy your retirement, your semi retirement. <laughs> Take it easy and uh, hope to see you on this side of the pod soon. Very good. Thank you so much. That was fun. Once again, a huge thanks to Pete for making an exception and giving me one of his very rare interviews. I do feel very special. I'll give another mention to the documentary Pete talked about, Remembering Gene Wilder, which will have a limited cinema release in the US in March. But if you're not in the US, do keep an eye out for it on streaming platforms. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate to help keep the lights on. It's always nice to get a five-star rating or review, and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So please do that on your podcast platform of choice. It would totally make my day. And do follow me on social media and and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>